Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 69, Navigating Deep Space. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know the cool stuff about what's going on right here at NASA. So if you're familiar with us, you may have heard our episode on space communication networks. It was episode 26, Can You Hear Me Now, with Bill Foster, a ground controller. It was a really good conversation, and it was a nice overview on how space communication networks work in general, especially with day-to-day operations on the International Space Station. But today, we're focusing how space communications will work on missions out in deep space. We're talking with Greg Holt, Orion Navigation Lead here at NASA's Johnson Space Center. We talked about how Orion, NASA's deep space vehicle, will communicate with mission control all the way from the moon and beyond, and also what happens if a primary communication system fails. So with no further delay, let's jump right ahead to our talk with Dr. Greg Holt. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Thank you for coming on the podcast today, Greg. Nice to have you here. Great to be here, Gary. Thanks. I love this topic of communication and navigation, too, because a lot of space movies today, you see them and there's always something that goes wrong in the space movie. It's, it makes for a great narrative. It makes for a great story. But um, it's always that lack of communication and, oh, no, I'm an astronaut. I'm by myself now. It's that sort of thing. And so this is an interesting topic on to see how this is going to work because we're talking about Orion and we're talking about deep space today. So let's just kind of start with that. Let's talk with um, we're talking about navigation. We're talking about communication with a deep space craft. How does basic communication and navigation with a spacecraft work? So that's a great question. And, you know, we've all seen those same movies yeah. and uh, us and the crew. And so we also spend a lot of time sitting around thinking about what do we do uh, to make sure we don't lose communication and then boy in those very bad days when we do what is the crew supposed to do about it right uh, but you know the on a normal day uh, out in deep space we're normally talking through uh, as you mentioned there's a deep space network out there hmm. uh, that's uh, managed by our uh, our colleagues over at uh, jet propulsion laboratory in california and uh, they've been uh, had that running for decades now and use it for a variety of interplanetary spacecraft and so uh, once we really get outside of our comfort zone around kind of low Earth orbit, uh, that deep space network becomes our, our linchpin for communication out there. Hmm. So there's several space networks then. There's the deep space network, which is communicating with all these different robotic probes that we have all in, across the solar system. And that's the primary, I guess, network that we're using for those, right? But there's one that exists around here. What's what's going on around Earth? There is. There is a near-Earth network, and that consists of a number of ground-based dishes that communicate with satellites in low-Earth orbit. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, uh, the TDRS, or the Tracking Data Relay Satellite Constellation, Mm-hmm. that uh, is up in a geosynchronous orbit that's also communicating with satellites that are in the proximity of Earth in that near low Earth orbit uh, area. But yeah. again, once you get outside there, you're really uh, back on the deep space network and uh, you have to uh, use those bigger, more capable dishes to talk out there. So. Right, because those TDR satellites are geosynchronous, right? So they're 20, 22, 23,000 miles, I think, away from Earth. So once you, I mean, that's, it sounds pretty far. You got a pretty decent snapshot of Earth, but once you cross it, I mean, they're not, they're not talking to that spacecraft. That's right. And it sounds like a long way, but when we're zooming, for example, out to the moon, mm. we're really only in contact really for the first 15, 20 minutes or so, maybe 30 minutes if we're lucky on the way out, but then we've really got to start handing over to that deep space network because it's a long way to the moon and our, we travel fast uh, getting through that very first lower Earth orbit phase. Oh, wow. So you're talking about after that, uh, I guess it's called, it's referred to in all the old space movies at TLI, right? Translunar mm-hmm. injection. That's that final burn that gets you once you're circling Earth. You got it. Boom, you burn and you're on your way. So that's, you say that's about 15, 20 minutes until the translunar injection until bam, you're you're passing the TDRS satellites? It's, it's really fast out wow. there. It's a lot faster than most of us anticipate. And yeah. the very first time that we simulate that for all of our ground control folks, 
it always catches us by surprise how quickly <laughs> we zip through uh, the GPS constellation, the Tedris constellation. We're just going through all of those, and yeah. we're really out there on our own, uh, having to look back at the deep space network in very short order. So, so what's the GPS constellation? Is that a, is it another network? Yeah, that's okay. a global positioning system. Right. You know, the same satellites that uh, you communicate with, uh, like your your car or your smartphone. Oh, we uh, all need that. that uh, exactly. That uh, <laughs> that we see we receive that signal from those uh, global positioning satellites. Okay. Uh, you know, lets us navigate our cars all over the place, tell us exactly where, our, where we are when we're carrying our phones around. Mm. Uh, we can use that, of course, on our spacecraft as well when oh. we're relatively close to the Earth. Okay. Uh, but once we, again, get too far away, then uh, that global positioning system uh, also is out of range, and we've really got to go back to some of the more old-school methods of navigation using radio signals and, uh, as you'll talk about even some star star sightings and things of that nature so Ooh, radio signals i want yeah. to definitely get into that that'd be pretty cool um so these networks we have we have gps we have tedris deep space network do we have complete control over these networks or is this a shared resource you know all of those are really shared resources mm -hmm. and uh the uh, both the, especially the near-Earth network is shared amongst uh, a lot of users, uh, both from the NASA standpoint and Department of Defense, all kind of shares that resource and both contribute to uh, its upkeep. And so uh, we do have to share that resource quite a bit. Uh, the Deep Space Network uh, is mainly NASA projects on there, uh, but again, there's enough of them that they also, that also has to be uh, shared and scheduled quite a bit in advance. Mm. And so uh, lots of times we'll have to schedule that months in advance, in fact, that time to be on the Deep Space Network just because there's so many probes. There's uh, New Horizons out at Pluto, and there's uh, other probes at Mars, and there's other vehicles uh, near the sun that are all wanting to communicate with that Deep Space Network. And so we have to schedule that resource well in advance, and uh, we try to be collegial about it and uh, <laughs> make sure that we uh, respect when everybody has critical science going on versus uh, obviously if we're a human spaceflight vehicle we want to make sure that we have good coverage with our vehicle uh, and keep it safe so that's right because obviously if you're flying orion you want communication with orion but that doesn't mean that you're going to completely dominate all the communication and no one else can talk to their spacecraft because everyone's everyone's got stuff going on you're exactly right and uh, in general uh, when we have people on board we tend to get a little bit higher priority but we try not to abuse that mm -hmm. uh, because we again we realize that the deep space network is a shared asset and we want to uh, you know we want to make sure that uh, we're not uh, adversely affecting the science payloads and the rovers and the unmanned probes out there as, uh, as much as possible, so. Okay, so when it comes to deep space craft, I guess, I, we'll talk about Orion, but when it comes to communication and navigation, what are you looking for? What kind of data are we looking at? Why do we want to communicate? So communication and navigation, uh, interestingly, are uh, pretty interdependent hmm. uh, functions. They're you know they're separate, but they're but they're very related and interdependent. Uh, one of the reasons is is that they both use uh, the same radio signal uh, to accomplish their task. So that same radio signal that we're using to talk to the spacecraft, get data from the spacecraft, we're also uh, we're also encoding navigation information on that same radio signal and using it to actually locate the spacecraft as well. Hmm. So uh, it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a twofer. We get to piggyback uh, one function on another, but uh, for that reason, they become very uh, very related and interdependent. And obviously, the importance of being able to uh, communicate with the spacecraft is we want to be able to talk to the crew uh, and make sure that they can talk back to the ground uh, for uh, the normal interactions that we need to have with them. We also need to make sure, of course, we're getting data back from the vehicle and all the telemetry and all the systems so that the ground controllers and mission control can look at the uh, spacecraft systems, make sure they're all functioning properly. And then uh, one of the last and most uh, what I think is one of the more important things is we want to make sure we get some cool pictures down from the spacecraft yeah. uh, because, uh, you know, we've got a very unique spacecraft out there in a uh, region of space where uh, we haven't been in a very long time. So getting some cool, uh, some cool videos down uh, from around the moon, uh, I think is a pretty good, uh, pretty good task, too. <laughs> Definitely looking forward to those pictures, for sure. 
uh, especially if they're high resolution too. Are we looking at that? Uh, we are. So right now the system that we've got, uh, for example, on Orion, uh, gets us about to two megabits per second uh, at its highest rate. Mm. So that's that's plenty good for some compressed HD video. That takes about one and a half megabits. So uh, so in our when we've got the uh, the times uh, allocated for it and the time slots, we'll turn those HD cameras on and get some really cool shots. I think coming uh, coming to us from uh, the vicinity of the moon, and we've got some unique cameras uh, at different locations around the Orion spacecraft, out on the tips of the solar arrays that can swivel around and take some neat shots of the spacecraft out there and uh, uh, while it's navigating to and from the moon. Now I'm thinking about it just from watching it on TV how pretty it's going to look but I'm sure that there's an engineering part to that too as a, as a, you're saying you got folks on the ground that are receiving this telemetry and data about the spacecraft numbers can tell you so much but a good picture can probably tell you a decent amount as an engineer too. It does and not only does it tell us about the health of the spacecraft, but it also, especially for the first couple of flights, gives us some really good engineering data about what's going on with the spacecraft and if there's anything uh, that we need to look at, uh, either tweaking in a, the design or uh, even fixing in the design for future missions. So for example, we see that one side of the spacecraft isn't, uh, isn't behaving well or the uh, we're getting back pictures that show that we didn't separate cleanly from some piece of the uh, spacecraft and we were supposed to have a separation event. Yeah. Then we'll go back and look at that picture in excruciating detail and watch <laughs> that video in super slow motion thousands of times and make sure that we really understand what was going on and what we need to, what we need to tweak in the design. Yeah, so that's when that higher resolution and that the more data you're getting, the, the better your assessment can be because the more you can see and play with that footage. Absolutely. So that's always good. You were talking about radio signals and, and it being it kind of sharing this, uh, this uh, feature, you got communication and navigation, uh, interdependent but two separate things. Navigation, I don't think we've actually dove into navigation too much on the podcast before. So, so how, does a, how does a spacecraft navigate? How does it know where to go? Very good question. And the answer really depends on where you are relative to the Earth. So... Hmm. Right when we're sitting on the pad, obviously we have a really good idea of where we are uh, because <laughs> well, <you> can see <laughs> it. we can see it and it's sitting right there on the pad. And uh, so at that point, we have uh, absolute certainty of where the vehicle is. Cool. Uh, but then once we, uh, once we get launched and get further up and uh, then get into our low Earth orbit, that's where we really lean heavily on global positioning systems. So mm -hmm. that GPS signal, just like you get in your car, your smartphone. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, like I said, it works really well when you're uh, close to the Earth. And uh, we have four antennas and two GPS receivers on Orion, and we get really good signal there, and we have a really good idea of where Orion is. But then after we do that big, uh, the big burn, the, the the TLI translunar injection you were talking about, yeah, we zip out rapidly past that uh, GPS constellation there. It's uh, only about twelve and a half thousand miles out there. So really, oh, wow. again, we're zipping past it in the first few minutes of the outbound trajectory on the way to the moon. And then we have to switch to, like I said, some of the more old school methods of navigation. And so uh, this is where we go back to using those encoded radio, those encoded information on the radio signals to, uh, to navigate just like they did back in the Apollo days. Uh, and then uh, they still use that uh, today for deep space probes. Uh, so oh. that method of navigating using that uh, encoded information on the radio signal uh, has actually been refined uh, very well by our JPL colleagues out there since Apollo. And so we're going to take full advantage, of course, of all the advancements that they've made both in the ground site equipment and the onboard radio transponder equipment uh, over the past couple of decades and uh, really gives us a nice modern communication system with upgraded avionics compared to Apollo uh, mm -hmm. that makes our job just that much easier navigating the spacecraft and telling where it is uh, from the ground by looking at the signature of those radios. Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, for that little while that is that the spacecraft is actually close to earth G gps it sounds like when it comes to navigation you're talking about gps you're talking about radio but really the theme here is that you really want to know the location of of the spacecraft is that is that like the main component of when understanding how navigation works is understanding where the spacecraft is that's one part of it okay. uh, but the other 
important parts from our perspective, not only is where is the spacecraft, but what direction is it going and how fast. So ah. the spacecraft's vol uh, velocity is very important okay. to us. And then the spacecraft's orientation. So all three of those play into uh, the navigator's job of keeping track of where it is, where it's going, what direction it's pointing, mm -hmm. and how all of those things affect. So uh, we go to great lengths to uh, to estimate all of those things continuously during mm -hmm. the mission so that we can always be prepared to uh, supply that information to the folks who are calculating the burns, for example, all the maneuvering burns, uh, so that they know which direction that we need to do course corrections. Mm -hmm. uh, all those things uh, rely fundamentally on that uh, navigation, knowing where the vehicle is, its velocity and its orientation, so that we can do all the the fancy math behind the scenes that gets <laughs> us where we need to go. So I think w when it comes to navigating a craft in space, it's not like what you see in sci-fi movies where there's someone with a joystick and they're just kind of weaving in and out of space, right? I think this, when it comes to deep space navigation, a lot of it is pre-planned. So it's it's knowing the velocity at this point in the trajectory, in the mission, it's supposed to be going this fast at this place and oriented this way. Is that kind of how that works? Very much. We okay. plan a lot of that uh, ahead of time, and we have a very detailed reference trajectory in before we ever start the mission. Okay. Uh, but inevitably, especially with a crew vehicle, you're going to slightly get off of that uh, pre-planned reference trajectory hmm. uh, due to things, uh, you know, uh, all the events that happen on board, especially a, a spacecraft with a crew, the crew is constantly breathing, for example. And that's a good thing. We like the crew to breathe. Yes. But that also <laughs> means that uh, carbon dioxide and things are constantly being vented overboard. Uh, we have things such as water and urine dumps that we have to deal with. Uh, so a lot of things that for example, that robotic spacecraft don't have to deal with. Yeah. Uh, for a vehicle with people inside, we do have to deal with these um, uh, these events, these overboard events that uh, do perturb, perturb the trajectory slightly. And so oh. we have to keep track of those things. And that's a lot of what our job is uh, as navigators on for human spaceflight missions is that we're constantly keeping track of these small perturbations that accumulate over the course of the trajectory and then using that to help feed that into what we need to do as far as mid-course correction burns to get us back on track and keep us, uh, on, the, keep us on the mission. Knowing, yeah, knowing the navigation, where you're supposed to be at one time, but I guess another thing, another consideration is is fuel and, and thrust. You know, you can't just be firing the jets all the time. You have the, a certain amount of fuel for these deep space missions that you that you have. It is, and we have those pre-planned points usually ah. during the trajectory where we have those mid-course corrections sort of scripted into the mission, if you will, such yeah. that every so often we will evaluate how we're doing uh, based on all of those. Uh, navigation measurements that we've taken to that point and say, okay, it looks like we're off by this much, so we need to correct our trajectory back by this much. We'll prescribe a burn, we'll upload that to the vehicle, and the crew will monitor it as it goes, uh, as it happens. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting that just venting CO2, or if you need to go to the bathroom and you need to let go some of the urine, right? That's that's Ryan. Ryan's not going to use this water recycling system. You're just going to dump it overboard. But just that little bit is enough to push a spacecraft. It's just amazing how that how space works like that. It is. Uh, <laughs> and again, we, we love having humans on board spacecraft, but yeah. from, from a navigator's perspective, sometimes we pull our hair out because those are the things that, uh, that we have to deal with, <laughs> is these uh, uh, all these little overboard uh, dumps really yeah. cause these perturbations to accumulate and we have to cause our job of uh, keeping track of the vehicle to be that much more challenging. So another thing you're talking about was was orientation of the spacecraft. Again, I'm, I, I keep thinking about sci-fi movies here, but you're not talking about a spacecraft just kind of zipping through. Um, you don't really have to deal with aerodynamics as much like a plane is shaped away because you're flying through the air. This one you can sort of face in any direction, but I'm sure there's some strategy on which direction you want to be facing. So what's the orientation of the spacecraft when it's flying? So we have a lot of different orientations that we oh. use, uh, and we'll use different uh different prescribed orientations of the vehicle for different purposes. And one of the ones that we like uh, for Orion specifically is what's called that tail to sun orientation or attitude. Tail to sun. And that's where we basically turn the vehicle around, point the back end uh, right there at the sun. So that uh, lines up our solar arrays right there at the sun, gives us nice good power consumption, mm. keeps the uh, 
all the components at uh, just about the right thermal uh, thermal temperature balance. So we have uh, some electronics are a little bit more sensitive to temperature than others. So that tail to sun orientation or attitude, as we call it, uh, keeps those keeps the hot things hot, keeps the cool <laughs> things cool, and keeps uh, the solar rays pointed right there where we get good power. Uh, a generation and distribution throughout the vehicle. So that's a key component of orientation is not, you're not pointing where you want to be flying, you're pointing to where you're getting a good amount of power consumption, but also you're protecting the systems from the intense, I guess, thermal constraints of space. It's super hot when the sun is shining on it and in the shade, it could be super cold. That's right. And we use, uh, we have two star trackers on the vehicle that help us uh, determine which direction the vehicle is pointing. So they're okay. actually constantly looking out at stars, recognizing the, the different stars and the different constellations and orientations, and constantly computing automatically on board what the direct, what direction the vehicle is pointing. And we're constantly feeding that to our guidance, navigation, and control system on board, which is uh, actively keeping the vehicle oriented just in the direction that we prescribe. So it's a fairly complicated uh, <laughs> feedback loop of things that has to happen just to keep the vehicle pointed in one direction. But Wow. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true, right? Because if, if I'm in my car, I want to turn left. I know that I'm going to orient. I'm going to turn the wheel and the car is going to go left. But this all different directions in space so the place that you want to orient is based on where the stars are exactly. so you have to know where the stars are going to be at this time in this place and which way wow that's so interesting they're looking at the stars that we really are again that's the we're getting back to uh, some of the more old school methods of navigation once yeah. you get beyond too far beyond earth orbit there you really have to use the stars to figure out your orientation, and then the stars, of course, become important. If you happen to lose communication on that radio link with the Earth, that's those stars become your only way to know where you are. Yeah, so, so that's that's the orientation. That's the method we use for orientation is, is knowing the stars. You talked about old school method um, of, of radio and that being a way to, to navigate the uh, spacecraft past whenever we're past the GPS constellation. So how does that work? How does the radio uh, communication work? So that's that uh, where I was talking about uh, we put that signal onto the communication link. So the uh -huh. communication uh, link for Orion uh, operates on an S-band radio frequency. Mm -hmm. And so what we'll do is we'll encode some navigation information onto that S-band radio signal. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's transparent to the vehicle. It just goes back and forth. But on the ground, we can actually take that signal and uh, do some special post-processing to it and actually extract a measurement from that. So it actually oh. measures either the range to the vehicle or the relative velocity of the vehicle to that receiving uh, dish. And so we can actually then take those measurements and plug those into our navigation filters and estimate where the vehicle is and what its velocity is just based on that uh, information that's encoded on the radio signal. Wow, but it's obviously pretty reliable because we've had spacecraft, like you said, all over the solar system flying in all different directions and going exactly where they need to go so it's so it's a pretty reliable navigation tool it is and that's been around really since the early days of human space flight so mm -hmm. even all the way back to uh, the very first satellite in fact sputnik uh, yep. they were able to track its radio signal and do some very crude post-processing on it and oh. figure out its velocity and orbit within a few hours uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the very first folks that track that. Yeah. Uh, of course, the Mercury and Gemini flights uh, refine that, and then the Apollo uh, engineers designed the uh, the universal S-band system specifically for Apollo. They had all of those pieces, the communication and navigation, all integrated together into one nice tight little package and uh, really did a great job for them and really was kind of the precursor to all of the, the modern communication and navigation equipment that we use today on spacecraft. You're not kidding when you say old school. You're talking about using radio as navigation from the first steps of spaceflight in general. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow, that's some significant stuff. From what you're from what you're talking about, when it comes to navigating um, a, a spacecraft, it seems like a lot of it is done with computers and a lot of it is done and monitored on the ground. How much are the crew doing? They're not really. It doesn't sound like they're doing a lot of flying. Uh, so that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, during the uh, the normal course of the mission, they're Obviously, just sort of keeping track of where the vehicle is. They're up, they're usually very curious to know how far away am I from Earth? How far do I have to go to the moon? So those type of questions always come up, and so we keep that navigation information handy for them. Mm -hmm. uh, the, but primarily, the the 
the navigation function is accomplished on the ground because we have those measurements taken from the radio signal and then of course we have the computers that actually crunch the numbers and figure out where they are. Mm-hmm. Where the crew does come into play though is if we do happen to lose communication with the ground uh-huh. and that's where uh, we spend a lot of our time and effort uh, thinking about those bad day scenarios but uh, you know that's the the type of things that we have to think through and what is the crew supposed to do if they lose communication with the ground? That radio signal is obviously not there. So that's when we have to fall to our, to our backup systems of navigation uh, that are completely self-contained on board the vehicle. And that's where we th- use things such as our optical navigation camera uh, and some of these backup systems where uh, in the, the very unlikely event that we should lose communication with the ground, we don't want the crew to be stranded and have no hope of getting back. So yeah. we include the, we have those backup systems. We train them how to use them. Uh, and uh, that's where the crew uh, becomes uh, super uh, involved and very interested in making sure that the, the spacecraft is navigated correctly. Okay, so so they're not they don't have their hands at a joystick and they're not flying left and right. They're really just kind of monitoring things, and you guys are too, as long as everything is going according to plan. Right. Their expertise is when stuff goes wrong. Exactly. And uh, you talked about optical navigation. Is it? I'm, I mean, you're, you're, if I'm thinking orientation, I'm thinking about the stars, how, how do they optically navigate? How does that work? So this is probably taking even one more step back into the old school uh, <laughs> where you, we've lost that radio link, as I mentioned. Yeah. And, and now we have to really navigate by the stars. And this is going, you know, Christopher Columbus type old school where you have to literally take sightings of the stars, sightings of the moon, measure angles between them and uh try to deduce from those measurements and triangulate your position uh, in the Earth-Moon space. And so it gets, uh, from a navigator's perspective, it's very cool and exciting because uh, huh. you know, that's, a, uh, that's a neat way to navigate. Yeah, that's pretty uh, cool. But it, uh, it definitely requires uh, some more, uh, some trickier math and some trickier uh, vehicle design hmm. to pull that off. So we have a, a camera that does that uh, automatically. Oh. And so if they do lose communication with the ground, Uh, That camera system kicks in, starts taking pictures of the moon and stars, uh, and automatically uh, deducing where it is based on the size of the relative size of the moon, where it is in relation to the background stars, because the the stars can be considered like a fixed target, and then the moon is kind of moving around as you navigate to and from the moon. The moon will appear to move around against the fixed background of stars, mm. and so you can infer where you are uh, based on using some uh, really, like I said, some old school triangulation methods yeah. uh, to uh, to get you where your you know your position and velocity, and continue to navigate the spacecraft and uh, and pull off those mid-course maneuvers and things that you need to actually get you back safely. Oh, okay. So so they're not really busting out the old Christopher Columbus, I forget what the <laughs> device is called, a sextant device? What's the what's the little navigation? Uh, right, right. So those yeah. uh, those old, those mechanical yeah. uh, instruments that you see, well, truth be told, uh, as an emergency backup, we we at least uh, have it on the, uh, uh, we're evaluating it right now, oh. Uh, that in a in a really really bad day situation, uh, where the that backup they, fails, where they they might they will uh, potentially carry one of those along yeah. as well. We actually wow. have an experiment on International Space Station right now, where the crew is actually uh, has a sextant up there, a real uh, marine sextant, cool, uh, just like you would see uh, out at uh, out at sea today. And they are practicing taking measurements uh, from the International Space Station, and uh, they're really doing a great job. Matter of fact, I was just uh, on the uh, on the loops with them this morning. <laughs> I was talking with the, with the crew members up there, uh, coaching them through a, a session of taking sextant measurements out the uh, out the window, uh, and they're really doing a great job. They they actually. Uh, really like it. It's it's really. Uh, I think they feel a kind of a connection uh, to some of the old school uh, techniques there, and the uh, and some of the the ghosts of the sailors' past whispering <laughs> over their shoulder to uh, helping them make tough them make good measurements. Yeah, you feel like a classic explorer. Indeed, indeed. But um, uh, you know, it's 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 interesting. It's an interesting concept because uh, you know it's one of those situations that you you don't want to. Uh, you hope never happens, but right. You know, in a in a very bad day scenario where your computers are down uh, and and a lot of your backup systems have failed, uh, it's nice in a for a last ditch emergency to just to have a nice solid mechanical 
piece of equipment that doesn't require a, a fancy computer uh, or anything like that that you can just pull out and at least keep track of where you are and give yourself a fighting chance to get back home. Yeah, that's crazy. A backup to a backup because you have this system that does a lot of even even in the case where you would lose that navigation ability, you do have a backup. Then you have a backup to that. That's pretty crazy. Um, now in this in this scenario where they lose in the first one where they lose communication and they're using this backup system that automatically detects where they are are they sending the commands or in this scenario do they still have communication with the ground and communicating where and when to fire things so this is uh, a situation where we have lost communication with the ground so oh, okay. the the onboard systems now are taking those pictures uh, continuing to tr navigate uh, completely uh, within the vehicle so not relying on any, any external assets there so we're just relying on those photos that we're taking to uh, determine where the vehicle is and where it's going okay and then the vehicle will also has the onboard targeting systems to take that navigation solution and turn that into a burn to get us to get them back on course uh, to get them back to earth so again a lot of that is all scripted and happens automatically cool but when communication when the ground is lost there's nobody on the ground monitoring to make sure all that is working correctly so that's mm. where the crew member comes in okay. they now take over the function of watching all those automated systems making sure that they're all behaving correctly doing their job correctly and then if anything uh, if they throws any warning flags or has any problems they're the ones that have to go in and diagnose and fix things and so that's where we spend a lot of our time training the crew making them aware of what to look for uh, when these automated functions are, are occurring, they have to have the expertise to monitor them and go in and take action if there's if there's a problem. Wow, that's that seems to be a, a theme when it comes to crew training. Is you know what happens when something goes wrong? You got to know, and that's like you said, you're spending a lot of time on it, and that's that's the truth. Because when it comes down to it, when it comes down to crunch time, you know something goes wrong, we have to make sure we're going the right direction. That is extremely important because you're on your own. You got to have that baseline knowledge. You don't have, you can't just, you know, search it up or call someone on the ground. Like you have to know. It is. And uh, like I said, we, it seems like we spend a, an order an amount of time uh, thinking through these scenarios and preparing the crew for when we lose communication. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's, it's a big enough deal and it's a big enough concern to the crew because that's a, uh, just think of from a psychological point of view. That's a that's a pretty uh, pretty harrowing experience to have to go through to yeah. lose your your safety net, your communication <laughs> signal with the ground, the ability to talk to someone and understand that you're still on track and everything's okay. And so that uh, that not being there is a really uh, a big psychological hit to the crew. So the more that we can prepare them to understand, if you lose communication from the ground, you can still look here and monitor everything see that you're still on on tr good trajectory you're still mm -hmm. going to make your entry corridor and everything's going to be okay um you know that's a big that's a big deal not just uh you know from a mission success standpoint but also from a psychological standpoint for the crew yeah for sure i'm thinking about some of the first missions of, of orion em1 em2 i'm thinking about those mission profiles and i know orion is going to be sent uh, th those missions are, are to the moon, right? So, right. so you're going to be going that way, uh, translunar injection. That's why it's called that. So you can go around the moon. Now, from what I understand from Apollo missions, once you get behind the moon, that's where communication gets a little bit tricky. I think you lose communication. Is that part of the mission plan? We do lose communication briefly, and that's expected. I see. And so we plan ahead of time that we're going to have a, a few minutes of, of brief communication outage behind the moon. The unfortunate thing, at least from our uh, flight controller ground perspective is that a lot of critical events are happening during that very brief time and that's really? just just the way that the orbital mechanics work out okay uh, so for example uh, some of our if we're trying to for example insert into a uh, a big halo orbit or distant retrograde orbit around the moon uh, we have to execute that burn just in that spot where we have that lost communication right behind uh. the moon and so we don't get to monitor that burn and monitor the telemetry and the data from that burn in real time uh, we have to wait until the burn happens and then we see it come out from behind the moon we get our data and telemetry back okay. and then we can tell after the fact whether the burn worked or not 
but um, uh, we don't actually get to see it uh, <laughs> right during during the bird, and so that gets a little bit of a little bit of a harrowing time. Uh, and that's where it's nice to have a crew on board. They can be obviously right there monitoring the burn. If there's any problems that happen during yeah. the burn, they can take immediate action as opposed to the ground, which won't be able to see the burn or take action until many minutes later. Ah, uh, okay. So in this in this scenario, you're going behind the moon. You're doing that burn. Is that is that burn to circle around the moon and come back or what what's what's happening in the in the mission profile where's it going so that's uh depends on the uh, where you're uh if you're going inbound or outbound so uh, on the way out we're generally trying to capture into some sort of a lunar orbit so we can uh, stay there for for a little while and conduct the mission okay and so that first burn is usually to capture you into lunar orbit and that happens behind the moon right that happens behind the moon okay. and then uh, at the end of the mission was time to come home we do kind of a reverse where we come back, uh, but again, we have to do another burn to get us back on a trajectory back to the Earth. Behind the moon. Again, behind the moon, <laughs> and uh, the, the, the poor crew, uh, again, has to pull that one off, um, uh, or at least monitor it on their own. Uh, yeah. We pre-calculate on the ground and get everything set up for them, but uh, you know they they have to monitor it uh, on the ground, uh, I mean, on the spacecraft, and then the ground will pick them up on the, on the flip side when they come out on the other side of the moon, and uh, do a quick radio track from the Deep Space Network and uh, confirm that everything uh, went off okay and give them the uh, give them the go to, to continue on home. Wow, no kidding! Important stuff going on behind the moon. Yeah. There. Wow. Um, yeah. So definitely something that you want to know. But it sounds like when you when you come around the moon, you understand based on whenever you get that signal back, it went successfully or it did not go successfully. Are you getting some? Are, is, is it recording data behind the move, moon too, so that whenever you regain communication, you can understand exactly what happened? Yes, absolutely. So cool. we we have our data recorders going the whole time. Uh, once we get back communications, we'll set up a just a file transfer link and record all that data down to the ground, double check and make sure that the burn executed successfully. Nice. Um, but you know, one of the very first and early indications that we get, and even the Apollo guys use this trick, is uh, actually just monitoring what time we get communication back. So, uh, uh, you know, our, uh, our flight dynamics officers there in Mission Control are, uh, are so good at their job, they can usually predict down to the second uh, or two when we're going to get communication back. So if the burn didn't go exactly as planned, it was either uh, didn't, it was either too cold or too hot, didn't add enough energy or, uh, or added too much, the communication will either happen, the return of communication will either happen too early or too late. Ah. And so if, we are, uh, if we're a little early getting communication back or we're a little late getting communication back, then that'll give us a uh, very first heads up, hey, something didn't go right with that burn. Yeah. Uh, but if we get it back right on time, uh, then that at least gives us our, our very first indication, yep, we're right, right on the money. We got calm back right when we expected. Uh, and then, like I said, we'll do a quick radio track just to confirm. But Yeah. So it sounds like for, for a lot of this, you... I mean, in, in your position, are you working pretty closely with the operations folks? And because it sounds like a lot of this is is dealing with, you know, operate operating the spacecraft and understanding the navigation of, of, yeah, uh, the mission itself. It is, and we have a really great team uh, here that's participating in both the design and the operations of Orion. I see. Okay. And we work very closely together uh, on a daily basis, really, uh, because we're very sensitive to the fact as vehicle designers that uh, the folks who operate this vehicle uh, are going to have to know exactly what to do with it mm. uh, and so we try to, to design operability into the vehicle wherever we can yeah. uh, and uh, of course they're uh, as operators they're sensitive to the fact that uh, they want uh, all the bells and whistles on the uh, on, on a vehicle and <laughs> we, we always have to be sensitive to how much, uh, how much mass everything adds to the vehicle, how much power it consumes. And so we have to play that balancing game between, uh, you know, both the crew and the, and the flight controllers, uh, you know, want uh, the, the greatest GWIS system they can, they can put on there, uh, which is great, but it weighs a million pounds and, uh. <laughs> and consumes, uh, you know, a thousand watts of power. And so we can't, I'm sorry, we can't, uh, can't put all that on there. Uh, so we, had, we do have to play those, uh, those system trade games to make sure that we have a vehicle that's, uh, that's operable and the crew can understand, but yeah. can, still can get off the locked bed. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Orion would be pretty huge if everyone got what they wanted, yeah. right? So, <laughs> all right. So um, let's, let's talk about the Orion itself. You know, when it comes to this navigation and communication systems that's on there, what's happening? Uh, where is it in, a con in its construction, in its design, um, especially for the EM-1 crew module and, and everything that's going on there? 
So we've got uh, really communication and navigation equipment sort of scattered all around the vehicle. Oh, really? So the uh, we have antennas sort of distributed all around. We have a handful of antennas around the uh, the capsule, the cone shape in the front, and then mm-hmm. we have uh, more antennas uh, around the the service module in the back. Oh. And these are uh, what we call phased array antennas as our primary communication. Uh, system. Okay. And so they actually have active electronics that will steer and shape that uh, the the beam coming from the uh, from the antenna. So it actually shapes that antenna pattern in just the right direction that we want it to maximize that bandwidth hmm. uh, as we're as we're flying along and orienting uh, the spacecraft in different directions. The beam will actually use those electronics to steer the beam over to just the right spot uh, on Earth and uh, and really get us uh, those high bandwidths that I was talking about that gives us the cool HD video and all nice. that. Uh, and so uh, those uh, those antennas are the kind of the, the tip of the spear when it comes to the uh, to the communication system. And then, of course, that all feeds down into the guts of the uh, communication equipment where we have baseband processors uh, and then our, uh, our S-band transponders uh, that actually do uh, the processing of the signal and puts all that data and telemetry on there. And then, of course, the crew voice and the video, mm-hmm. all the great information that we want to get down, it has to all get mixed together into that radio signal and send out those antennas mm-hmm. uh, down to the ground to be picked up by the Deep Space Network dishes and then routed ultimately to Mission Control or to wherever we need to that uh, information to go. Wow. So they're, I mean, when it comes to designing and, and where they're going to be, they, you, like you said, they're all over. I know um, the ESA, European Space Agency, is, is working on the service module, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, and then the crew module is somewhere else. So they have to talk to each other. They have to make sure everything works. Um, I guess we'll start with the, with the mission itself. In the mission, how long are the crew module and the service module together throughout the whole mission? So they're together for most of the mission, in really? fact. So okay. all the way through, uh, obviously, they're uh, made it together uh, early on in the process before it ever gets uh, attached to the to the booster and gets uh, rolled out to the pad. Yeah. For the entire mission all the way to the moon and back, that service module is attached, uh, providing power and consumables to the vehicle. And then we'll really only uh, detach the uh, the crew module from the service module uh, for the last 20 minutes or so of the flight. So right before we re-enter the atmosphere, uh, we will detach, and then the crew module itself will reorient, and that's the only part that comes back and is the recovered part uh, that has the crew inside, of course, uh, and survives the re-entry uh, and splashes down for recovery. The service module uh, just burns up in the atmosphere as it comes back. But for a majority of the mission, we have that service module ta- attached. And we take advantage of that, of course, like I said, because we have antennas on there that yep. we can use to talk to the ground. Right. We have our nice solar rays there that provide us the power. We have fuel tanks and, and the like there that provide us uh, fuel. And of course, we have our big uh, orbital maneuvering system engine on the service module as well. So it, it really is uh, sort of a workhorse for us while we're up there. Uh, and we only uh, separate from it at the very last minute. Right. It's. I mean, it seems like a lot of the a lot of the efforts of the mission itself are are coming from the service module. You got the fuel, the things that's actually orienting you, pointing you where you want to go. That's all important stuff. It is. It is. I, but the the bulk of the uh, the avionics and like I was saying before, the communication navigation equipment that all has to be there up there in the crew module because right. we we still need that yeah. after we separate yeah. uh, and want to come back. So <laughs> our GPS receivers, yep. our uh, inertial measurement units, which include our accelerometers and gyroscopes, uh, and uh, you know a lot of the other, like I said, communication and navigation gear are all uh, housed up in that uh, command module, the, the crew module, so that we can hang on to that after we separate and use that to help us navigate during the uh, the entry phase as well. We still have to be able to fly the vehicle down and get it now, get to where we go for splashdown. Wow. It seems like the communication and navigation system just in general it, consists of a lot of components. You're, you're listing all these different things that have to talk to each other in order to make this thing successful. How many of them, it sounds like a lot of them, are, are proven, used before technologies? Um, how many of them are, are in this scenario, and then how many of them are, uh, are more novel? Uh, newer technology. It's it's a, it's a mix. Okay. Uh, we obviously try to lean on the uh, the time tested and proven methods for kind of our primary systems. Yeah, uh, of course. And obviously, crew safety is a big consideration. So we we want to try to try to stick with things that uh, we know or at least have high confidence that will work. Yeah. Uh, so. 
these S-band radio signals through the deep space network uh, are, are tried and true, right. and so we uh, we use those for the primary communication and navigation uh, when we're navigating to to the moon and back. Global positioning system obviously has uh, been out there for a long time now, since the 80s, and uh, so everybody, like I said, uses it in their uh, cars and smartphones, and mm-hmm. uh, does a great job of telling us where we are. So, you know, those systems have been around for a while, and, and we and we and we trust those pretty well. Some of those, the new uh, the new backup systems, is where we get into some of the more experimental things. Ah. So, the optical navigation system, for example, is yeah. uh, is brand new. It's a brand new technology that we developed just for Orion cool. to have that backup capability and navigate to the moon and back if we happen to lose communication. Um, some of the other new technology that we're, uh, that we're working on now is uh, even an optical communication system that uses, uh, uses lasers instead of radio oh. to communicate. So that's the example is I like to give is like the, 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 that's the difference between talking on a, uh, on a normal uh, Ethernet line and talking on a fiber line. Ah. Uh, you just, the bandwidth just whoosh, skyrockets <laughs> once you can get that, uh, get that laser calm. Cool. Uh, so uh, we do have some experiments there on some of the early Orion missions uh, with a, uh, with some laser communications. Um, we call it optical communications. Optical. And it, um, it, it's trickier and it's more experimental, but uh, once we get the kinks and uh, worked out on that, uh, that'll really increase the bandwidth uh, and again, allow us to do uh, even more uh, great v- uh, video and uh, the ability to interact with the vehicle uh, and get a lot more data down as well. Yeah, and when you talk about bandwidth, you talk about total information that you can deliver at once, right? So if you can increase that, that's more information that you can put onto the vehicle. Of course, that means mass. So, you know, there's there's that consideration too, but still, yeah. I mean, my hope as as the public affairs guy is like you're you're just beaming 4K images down. <laughs> now, that is my dream, but I don't know. Yeah. That would be pretty cool. Um, so so when it comes to these experimental things and, and even some of the older proven technologies, um, what's being done to test it to make sure everything's going to work come mission time? So, especially with the crew on board, we have to make sure everything is uh, is really ship shape. So yeah. we, we we do test those out pretty pretty thoroughly. Mm-hmm. We have communication tests that we regularly do between the Orion's equipment and the deep space network. So uh, the folks at JPL actually have a uh, a little mobile. Uh, Net, network simulator they can send around uh, and go test out your equipment. They uh, they provide that to all the uh, the robotic probes that are going out to the solar system. Uh, they will actually put a little mini deep space network on a truck and send it out to your assembly facility and you can plug in and make sure that your equipment works with the deep space network before you ever leave the ground. So nice. uh, so we do that same thing on Orion. Uh, it's really kind of neat to see them uh, pull, <laughs> pull up in their pull up in their truck with the uh, with the with the mini DSN and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Mini DSN is a pretty it, cool it really thing is. to have inside of a truck. Uh, but uh, yeah, it provides a uh, an exact replica of the type of signals that you're going to see and so you can test out your actual flight hardware right there on the spot and make awesome. sure it's, it's going to work. Uh, and so we, uh, we do those tests. And um, uh, in addition to obviously testing out all of our navigation equipment, uh, you know, our global positioning system, we can test that out, uh, obviously just using the live sky signal coming from the, the, the GPS satellites broadcast here down to the earth. We can turn that on and make sure that's all working. Uh, and uh, we test all out all of our other equipment, not only on the uh, on the hardware side, but the software side. We yeah. run that software through uh, through millions and millions of different uh, <laughs> simulations with every different kind of perturbation of failure that we can think of to really uh, ring it out and make sure that it's responding correctly in all those situations. Wow. So I mean, when we're talking about Orion and the and the communication and navigation of this deep space vehicle, it is exactly that. It's a deep space vehicle, and obviously we have some missions already planned to, for it to go around the moon. But you know, once we do that, you can you're talking about something that can go out to to Mars and and even further further than that. It's it's a deep space vehicle. So once we build this technology and we go through some of these first missions. How much of it is translatable to just deep space travel? How much can we take with us to future missions? Quite a bit, actually. Uh, And so the good news is we're designing this as a deep space vehicle from from its conception. So it has all of the systems that you need 
to to go out beyond Earth orbit, hmm. uh, just kind of designed in from from the start. So yeah. we have all the the communication equipment. So that uh, that S band communications equipment, the the locations of the antennas, uh, all the redundant uh, features that you need to have ultra ultra reliable communication, hmm. uh, not only to the moon but beyond. So all of that compatibility is already built in. So really from a communication standpoint, going to Mars just means you just start using a little bit bigger and bigger dishes uh, on the deep space uh, network on the ground side. Okay. Uh, the further the farther that you go out uh, and your bandwidth, you will dial back the bandwidth just a little bit to account for the, the losses that you get uh, as you're going further and further out. But the, the fundamental equipment uh, is, is all still there. And uh, you know, really the fundamental navigation doesn't change a whole lot either. You're still using that uh, encoded radio signal uh, and so, you know, that's really kind of what, uh, what I like to think sets Orion apart uh, is kind of having that uh, built into the vehicle uh, as, you know, kind of the first, from a first consideration, uh, having all of that uh, capability to communicate and navigate all the way out to, uh, to very deep distant objects. So, you know, that same communication nav system that we have going to the moon uh, could take us to Mars, wow. uh, can take us to any number of deep space destinations that we've got out there. Uh, and uh, you know it, it's it's uh, not quite it. it uh, it's a little bit of overkill if you're <laughs> just going around, just going up to to low Earth orbit, for example. Yeah. Uh, you know all of that equipment, and all the redundancy that's built in. Sure. Uh, but uh, you know it's really the only thing that can get you uh, out to those deep space destinations. Yeah, redundancy is is a key theme here, but it's but it's very exciting how translatable a lot of that is. Maybe you know small tweaks here and there, and you can k keep increasing reliability, but but the the systems, the the functions, they're they're all there. That's very exciting stuff. Yep. Uh, so so we'll kind of end with that. It, just how exciting this time is. Uh, looking forward to some of these first missions. What are, what are you really looking forward to for EM one, EM two, the first missions of Orion? Boy, I think seeing those first uh, those first signals there for Mission Control, uh, getting <laughs> those first navigation measurements back, uh, and seeing that we're. On, co on course, yeah. we're, 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 we're really getting the moon the very first time that we, uh, you know, we take a pass and do a measurement predict and show us heading out to the moon instead of just, uh, instead of just going around the earth. That's going to be pretty exciting. Said, hey, we're, we're on our way, guys. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's showtime. That's going to be a yeah, good gonna moment. Be, when you see everything coming back and you're like, wow, we are on our way. Absolutely. And then uh, just like everybody else, you know, the very first time that we get that, uh, get that HD video down oh, yeah. uh, from, from the vicinity <laughs> of the moon and uh, get to see those close-ups there. Uh, and some really cool shots of the moon as we're flying by, you know, that's, that'll be exciting. I will definitely be looking forward to that as well. Greg, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this insight into communication and navigation of My deep pleasure. space spacecraft. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Dr. Greg Holt about uh, the navigation and communication of the Orion spacecraft that'll take us uh, out into deep space. We've talked about communications before. Again, check out episode 26, Can You Hear Me Now, with Bill Foster. We've also talked about Orion before. Uh, we gave a nice overview of the spacecraft just in general on episode 17. And then uh, we talked about how the crew will operate inside for missions that can go up to three weeks. On uh, We talked about, I think that's episode 28. Yeah, um... What was that? Three Weeks in a Capsule was the name of that. And uh, we also take, this one's actually a good one, A Ride Inside the Capsule for episode 35. Uh, we talked with Jeff Fox for that one uh, and actually brought the audio from the first uh, test mission, EFT-1, uh, and we brought it onto the podcast. So you can actually just kind of sit back and uh, imagine what it's like to take off and to land and splash down uh, from in the Orion spacecraft. You can go to nasa.gov slash Orion to learn more. They have a great article that released recently, uh, Top 5 Technologies Needed for a Spacecraft to Survive Deep Space. Navigation is one of those, so you can go and read a little bit more there. Otherwise, you can follow us on social media. We're the International Space Station, Orion, or the NASA Johnson Space Center uh, accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Use the hashtag AskNASA on any one of those platforms. Submit an idea for the show. We'll bring it right here. 
This episode was recorded on August 20th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Bill Stafford, Pat Ryan, Laura Rashawn, and Rachel Kraft. Thanks again to Dr. Greg Holt for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.